Good morning. Um, so as Kara said, my name is Megan Granigan. Um, my family and I have been here at Trinity almost five years now. It's gone by really fast. We've got three boys, including our little mascot, Henry, over there. Um, and when um, Susan told me that we were going to be studying these books of the Old Testament, I'm pretty sure I like actually squealed out loud because I love the Old Testament. It's kind of my good home place and everything. So I'm super excited. We have a lot of text to get through, though. Um, it's seven chapters. I'm sure when you were reading, you were like, oh, wow, this is going to keep going, right? Um, but it's really good and rich text. So we'll go ahead and get started. Um, when I was in high school, my best friend and I lived like no more than five minutes apart, maybe even that. You know, we, we had our little driver's license, thought we were cool, and we were over at each other's houses a bunch. So one night, I'm coming back from her house, and it's around curfew, so like 10 or 11 at night, and it's dark. And there had been some new construction um, between our houses where there were roads that had been paved and everything but weren't quite open yet and no houses around. And so we would take that as like our shortcut, right, to like get back and forth a little faster. So I'm headed home that night. It's dark. And all of a sudden, as I'm coming, um, another car like comes up and almost hits me. Um, and so we stop, you know, I, like I keep going, everything, everything's fine. And I look in my rearview mirror and there are headlights. And I just think that's kind of weird. Um, and the headlights start coming a little bit faster and a little bit faster. And it turns out that it's this car that like we almost got in a wreck. He's chasing me and he's coming up alongside me and cutting me off to where I either have to stop or swerve really fast and because he wants me to stop. And so what do you do when you're a high school you know, girl and you're threatened? You call your dad. They didn't call 911, I called daddy. And so on my little Nokia brick phone, I was like, dad, someone's chasing me. You know, I, like, I don't know what to do. And I'm less than a mile from home at that point. But um, so I like, you know, pull onto our street in our house. We had an alleyway that led to our driveway and then our house was on a hill. And I'm like, pulling into the alleyway and the car keeps going and I see my dad barreling down the hill. I mean, he is furious. And all of a sudden I like go from hearing my dad on the phone to like boom. And um, he we didn't have guns in our house at that time. So he took the you know the home phone like the cordless and chunks it at the um, car. The car window's down, so we lose the home phone. It's in the car. <laughs> and so, um, two things I was thankful for that night. I was not hurt, and then they did not have a gun or were so shocked by my dad's behavior that they didn't think to use the gun. Um, and so he was safe too. But uh, why I tell you a story about like a random night from high school is to kind of bring to mind what happens for a father when their, you know, their kid, their firstborn in my case, is um, being threatened. You go, like you see blood red, right? Like if you're a parent, you know that if someone messes with your child, you are going to get angry. And that's kind of where we find God right now. He, you know, Pharaoh has been picking on his firstborn, the Israelites, for so long. And he goes, enough. We're done. We're not going to do this anymore. Let my people go. And that's kind of where we pick up um, starting in chapter 5. And so, like I said before, this is a pretty big span of um, scripture to get through today. So we're going to focus on, you know, the theme of power and how we see power in the different characters um, of the text. And so first we're going to start with Moses. Um, there's a spectrum of growth that we need to kind of look for in Moses' character, right? When we first see him, he's kind of this privileged son in Pharaoh's household. He's like the elite of the elite. Um, about the highest ranking status that you know you can get back in that day. And then he goes down, like kind of descends down with his people, 
and he sees the injustice being done to his fellow man and tries on his own power to take care of it. And what does he do? He botches it, right? Like murders the man, buries him, and becomes this man on the run because he is trying to do this in his own power. Um, and so we kind of meet him there. He's a you know, man on the run, a humble shepherd. And then God speaks to him. Um, after 400 long years, God calls him by name, meets him, and says, you know, I have this job I want you to do. And how do we find Moses react? He's like argumentative. Um, he's hesitant. He's reluctant. He's like, surely anyone but me. I'm slow to speech. Anyone's got to be able to do it, right? And you kind of like cringe watching this. I mean, it's probably what we would do to you, but you kind of cringe. Um, and so then all of a sudden in um, chapter 5, we see his transformation into this faithful prophet and servant of the Lord. And I think that we need to kind of stop and see like, what, who did that? Like, what is that? Is that Moses just growing and, you know, changing? No, it's the work of God in Moses's heart. Under God's own power, Moses is transformed to be able to lose his fear and his self-centeredness. And now he's confident and he's focused on God's power um, to where he can go and demand something of the most powerful man on earth, right? And that is God's work. And I think that that's an interesting kind of foreshadowing and just like also reflection of something we see in the New Testament. And that's Jesus' disciples. So when we meet Jesus' disciples, they're kind of a ragtag bunch, aren't they? Like they um, second guess everything. They're really impulsive. They lack faith. I mean, down to when Jesus is you know, telling about his death that's about to come, and they're kind of like quieting him down, saying like, do, you know um and then after um they like it seems like they don't really know what they're dealing with that they're dealing with the kingdom of god um who they have in their midst and stuff after the crucifixion they become bold for the gospel don't they like to the point of death persecution brutality they are happy to go and take the gospel and preach it even to like the dark den of rome back then and that again is god's power alone in their lives. And so we see that with Moses. Um, but then we move down to Pharaoh's power. And it's kind of interesting, like I think it's something to take note of that Pharaoh and Moses kind of start out on the same footing in the sense that they both like have this great love of self and pride. But um, by God's grace, Moses turns to this obedient servant. We see that. But Pharaoh continues to harden his heart and to turn away from God and to disobey God, right? And so um, with Pharaoh, we see a few things outwardly. We see that he's really arrogant. So in chapter 5, um, the beginning of chapter 5, um, Moses and Aaron say, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go, that they may hold a feast um, to me in the wilderness. And then Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And so he's like petulant when he's saying this, right? This is not just like, I don't know who, what you're talking about. This is like petulant. It's snarky. Um, and so what we're going to see um, in just a little bit with the plagues is God going, you want to know who I am? Here's who I am. Like he puts on display for Pharaoh who he is um, as God. Um, and then he's also just like self-serving. Um, it was kind of the prerogative of ancient kings to be able to stretch out their hand and cause violence and destruction at their will, right? Like we see that quite a bit, even in the New Testament with Herod. Um, and so we see this quite a bit with Pharaoh, 
he has committed infant genocide where he says, okay, Hebrew midwives, um, you need to kill all of the, for, um, all of the uh, baby boys. And when that doesn't work, he says, okay, throw them in the Nile. And then now, now that he's confronted with the fact that God is saying, let my people go and serve me, um, he's um, saying, fine, I'm going to double down. You now have to make um, breaks with no straw, and you better not slack on that. And why do we see that kind of um, reaction with Pharaoh? It's because in Moses and Aaron coming to him and saying, thus says the Lord, that means that Pharaoh's not God. And so Pharaoh loves to be God in his own life. And in his world, um, he wants to play God. And we see that in his actions, right? And so that, I think, is kind of where we're seeing this, like, reaction from Pharaoh go. Um, and so, like, what power do we see at work in Pharaoh's life? We see the power of sin. Because these are all outward um, actions caused by this inward power. And sin is a power. And so... Um, Pharaoh has left this unchecked for his whole life and all of a sudden we see this horrible man in front of us like in the text um, that has just kind of like fed that sinful nature right and is running from God running from the thought that he is not God himself um, and one good illustration for this uh, we are big Harry Potter fans in our house I don't know if you guys are so spoiler alert if you haven't read them but um, and one good illustration is Voldemort so Voldemort needs a host to exist. In chapter or in book one, it's Professor Quirrell. He like is on the back of his head. There's a turban, all that. Um, and when Voldemort is like embodying Professor Quirrell, if you will, you see Professor Quirrell acting like he, you know, having these outward acts, like letting trolls in, trying to kill Harry multiple times, drinking unicorn blood, like all the things. Um, and so you're seeing this power that is controlling the outward act, and that's what we're seeing: this power of sin in Pharaoh and then all of these horrific outward acts after that, okay? So I think that one thing that we need to stop and think of, it's really easy in Exodus, but like especially in here, to think of ourselves as the Israelites, right? Um, but what if we think of ourselves as the Pharaoh or the Herod? Because outside of God's grace, we all have like a little Herod in us, the person that wants to be king, that wants to be ruled by our own will and our own plans. Um, and so it's, yes, we do see ourselves in the Israelites and that's good and that's right, but like also take a minute and um, identify with Pharaoh because were it not for God's grace, that sin and checked in our life, that's what we look at. Um, I think that Frederick Dale Bruner has a really good quote on this. Um, it's on your handout, but I'll go ahead and read it. He says, in Herod, we see a person, um, in person, what theology calls original sin. Herod is not merely the gospel villain. He is every man. Herod, does, um, Herod teaches us that the reaction of raw human nature to the kingship of Jesus is rebellion. If Jesus is Lord, then we are not. Thus, Herod, though an extreme case, is not an isolated one. Herod is what I am deep down inside. Um, and so I think that that kind of lets us in on Pharaoh a little bit more. Um, but we're going to see um, matched up against Pharaoh, we're going to see God's power. And so, like, let's take a look at that. So um, in chapters 1 through 4, we see God showing himself to Moses, right? He's introducing himself to him, um, making himself known, asking him to do these things. But 5 through 12, um, primarily God is doing this stuff to um, 
show himself to Pharaoh. And we see it, I, I know like in our scripture, like, or, sorry, in our Bible study, we um, kept kind of outlining or you know, underlining um, so that they may know I am God, right? Like that was repetitive. Um, and that's what he's doing there. And so why should we take confidence in this kind of like I am that we continue to hear from God? The first is because um, he shows himself to be all-powerful. Um, he know, we know that because he is showing that he has knowledge of future events. He is not shocked when Pharaoh um, rebu- you know, says, I don't know um, who this God is, and he hardens his heart and won't listen, right? Like he says, he's not going to listen. He's going to have his heart hardened. Um, but then also by stretching his hand out against the Egyptians and performing wonders. So he says that in Exodus 3, verse um, 20. So I will stretch my hand out and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And so let's take a quick look back. I just talked about that um, it was the prerogative of ancient kings to stretch out their hand and cause violence, right? So we're seeing God doing this. Like, make no mistake, these um, plagues are violence. Like, he is taking the most powerful and wealthy nation in the world to its knees in these seven chapters. But what's the difference between Pharaoh stretching out his hand and causing havoc and God doing that? God's is, um, is purposeful, is measured, and it's for redemption. Um, it is for, like, the good work of, Jesus, or of God. Um, Pharaoh's is solely for just self-gratification. It's almost like this angry toddler who just does what he wants, right? And so that's kind of just something to remember that, like, God is doing this, yes, but he is purposeful, and it's because of redemption for his people. Um, so we're going to go through the plagues really quickly. I gave you a little chart here. Um, we won't spend too much time on it because we need to kind of go fast. Um, so first, the Nile turns to blood, and Pharaoh's heart was already hardened. Um, this is good to know that this was a direct um, challenge to, like, um, the Egyptians worshiping the Nile. Um, and it's kind of funny because, like, he's saying this to Pharaoh, who is a god, basically, for the Egyptians, and then also, like, they worship the Nile. And so, you know, it's kind of this very purposeful, like, first act of, you, like, you want to know who I am, that, like, how I say I'm God? Well, I'm going to strike down your God in front of your God kind of deal. You know, we see that. And then we start to see, like, the shattering of their economy because we're getting fish from there. And that's the transportation and stuff. They can't use the Nile. Then we move down to the frogs. Um, and Pharaoh continues to um, um, harden his heart, especially after um, the frogs are gone and kind of stinking. And the magicians are able to replicate this um, as well, just like they did for the Nile, right? Um, but we see what I kind of envision is like a vase where cracks start to come. And we're seeing cracks with Pharaoh, where Pharaoh goes, um, plead to the Lord for me. And then he, like, hardens his heart. It's, he's not getting better, but we're starting to see that he's kind of getting a little bit shaken as we go on. Then we have gnats. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He wouldn't listen. Um, but the magicians start not being able to replicate. They can't do this one. And they recognize it as the finger of God. So his great advisors are now going, I think this guy's real. Like, this is the finger of God, you know, kind of deal. Um, a lot of the commentaries that I read said that this could have been lies. So can you imagine, we have been lucky enough to, like, avoid some very narrow escapes with lice with um, <laughs> elementary school. Um, but can you imagine, not just, like, lice in your hair, Lice in your hair, in your bedding, in your food, in your um, on your animals. Um, if you've ever had fleas on your dog, you yeah, I mean you can imagine kind of like. Mm. Um, and then God ups the ante, and we go to flies. 
and we have like kind of struggled with flies this year. It hasn't been the fruit flies, it's been the big black flies. I think I'd rather the fruit flies. Um, and so Pharaoh, we see like another crack. He goes, okay, fine, you can go sacrifice in the land this time. And Moses and Aaron say, no dice, we can't do that. Um, and he hardens his heart as soon as the flies are gone, right? Okay, and then comes like the really kind of bit, start like the big blows and um, the livestock. Uh, it's a massive economic blow to the Egyptian economy. Um, their wealth was measured in cattle. And so for the wealthiest nation to have all of their livestock die, um, their wealth just like tanked, um, like in an instant. Uh, then come the boils. And I think it's interesting to think about that like uh, Pharaoh's magicians who were replicating the first two plagues um, all of a sudden cannot stand before Moses because the boils are so bad and they just can't even come before him. Then comes hail, and we see this as another large economic blow because if you've talked with um, a farmer ever, if they have a crop that's just about ready and a hailstorm comes, they're sunk. Like, I mean, it can destroy an entire crop and an entire year's worth of work, right? Um, and we had, Chris and I, when we lived in Austin, when we were first married, um, we uh, had a hailstorm, and we've never had one since um, like it, but uh, it was softball-sized hail. And so when we came out um, of our apartment after it was done and licked in the parking lot, you just saw these just giant holes, like, punched in the windshields and, you know, like, all around the cars and everything. And if you had been out there, you could have either, you would be at the hospital or you'd be dead. Like, I mean, it is very significant. We all know you don't mess with a hailstorm. And so they had that. This is like another kind of crack in like the Pharaoh vase, if you will, where um, some of his Egyptian, like, you know, Egyptian people and servants are kind of starting to see like, this God is not joking around and they go in. And it, it talks about in verse um, 20, you know, the people that were out there and did not heed, you know, the warning died and um, some of the servants went in. So then we have the locust, and this is kind of the final blow to the economy and the agriculture. Um, and um, even in verse seven, the Egyptians are starting to implore Pharaoh to see reason. Like he is driving this into the ground for what? For his self-promoting purpose, like we talked about. And they are saying, just let them go. Like, oh my goodness, like we are, we are ruined now. Let them go. And Pharaoh still won't. Um, and by now we have like no real food supply because we've had, you know, the livestock are dead, the fish in the Nile were dead, um, the agriculture is gone. So they're kind of in a mess. And then comes the darkness um, and the Lord hardens his heart and we have three days of darkness. Now, three days of darkness should like kind of ring a couple of bells, right? Because it's foreshadowing the three days of darkness that will ultimately lead to the redemption we see in the gospel in the New Testament, right? Yeah, so that's kind of just like another foreshadowing. So we have like kind of our Herod figure of Pharaoh. We've got three days of darkness. And then last but not least, and this is what we're going to kind of turn to, is the Passover and um, the 10th plague, which is the firstborn son. Um, and so as you know, like we'll talk about the lamb and the Passover, but all of the firstborns in Egypt um, are dead around midnight. And there is a great cry, um, life was never heard before, never heard again. Um, and Pharaoh goes, be gone, get out, I, like, go. Um, and so why does God send these plagues? Because, like, I mean, they're, they're pretty intense. Like, they cripple the economy. Like, they take away, you know, um, lives and everything like that. Each plague has two, a twofold purpose. The first is judgment for failing to acknowledge God and um, failing to obey and let God's people go. 
And then the second is displaying his mercy to, um, to Israel, to set them apart from Egypt and then securing their liberty from their bondage, okay? So they are very purposeful plagues like we talked about. Um, in Exodus 34, verse 6, God talks. He's, um, Moses is making new tablets, um, and we'll, so we'll get to this. But he describes himself, and it's important to you know, think about this when we're thinking about God's plagues. He says, um, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So does that sound familiar for what we're seeing like with his actions and like his character, you know, now? Um, and so God uses this escalation of seriousness um, of the plagues as like a warning for this last plague. He already knows that Pharaoh is going to reject him. He already knows that Pharaoh is going to say, you know, no, I'm not letting your people go. And that the end result is going to be that tenth plague with the firstborn um, child, right? But still, because God is who he is, he has plague after plague after plague, and he, like, gives a reprieve from them. Like, he pulls, you know, all the flies back and the locusts back and everything. Um, and he gives Pharaoh every opportunity to turn around and obey and yet he doesn't. Even though he knows he's not going to, God is just, and he's slow to anger, and he's patient, and he gives us that chance to like turn to him and to turn away from our sin. Um, and so we see that like while he is like very fearsome and um, holy in this, he's also very just. So next we're going to move to the Lamb's power as part of Passover. Um, so the lamb's power is the power to protect because, uh, let's see, um, Exodus 11, 6 through 7, talks about there will be a great cry in all of Egypt, and not, but not even a dog will growl at my people that you may know you are distinct from Egypt. And so we see also this like contrast of belief and unbelief and disobedience and obedience. Um, it's kind of funny, like, as we study the Israelites, we're going to see that they're a little bit of a kind of a whiny people. They're prone to disobedience. They make golden calves when they're not supposed to. All, like, all of the things, right? But this one time, praise the Lord, we see this remarkable instance where Israel um, displays faithfulness and obedience. Um, and I love, there was a, con one of the commentators said it like this. He said, God provided a means of, um, of salvation from the judgment of the 10th plague of Egypt. But he commanded them to respond by embracing and believing this means of salvation. And so what does that look like for us? Like he provides a means of salvation through Jesus, and he commands us to believe and to obey, right? And so um, just like that, you know, we see that for the Israelites. And we see that um, it's kind of a you know, household thing for the Passover, they, you know, sacrifice the lamb, they paint the door with blood, um, and we kind of start seeing the household um, theme run through Acts as well, you know, um, Acts 31, it says, um, I believe in the Lord Jesus, or believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Um, so it's just kind of a cool thought on that. Uh, so first we see that the lamb's power is a sign. The blood um, is used as the first real demonstrative sign um, to give distinction between the Israelites and Egypt. Now we do see that like they are spared from the plagues, right? But this is the first kind of like sticker. I am the 
sorry guys, um, I am the Lord, you know, the Lord's like, you know, I'm an Israelite, right? Like that painting is kind of the first true sign that we see. Um, and, G and God uses signs um, as seals of promise to save his people from wrath. So like what, do, what else do we see in the scriptures as kind of a sign um, for that promise? We see the rainbow um, that he will never flood the earth again um, after Noah. We see the baptismal waters. And the cool thing about those is um, a lot of times, um, you know, households were baptized together, just like the household was saved from the blood of the lamb. Um, so even like in Acts 16, the household of the jailer, they were all baptized together. And then we see like the Lord's table um, where we celebrate Jesus's, you know, body being broken, his blood being poured out. Um, so then we also see uh, the lamb as a substitute. And so the um, lamb's blood was the substitute of the Israelites' firstborn son. And this is kind of where God starts really ramping up teaching about substitutionary atonement for the Israelites. And then we obviously will get in, more into that as we talk about the tabernacle. But this is kind of the start of it all. And then we look at Jesus um, as like Jesus and the lamb and kind of comparing those two. So... Um, Jesus is our lamb without blemish. So the lamb that they had to sacrifice was one that was without blemish, one year old, yada, yada. Um, 1 Peter 1, 18 through 19 says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver, um, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty wall, um, way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And so... Um, we see Jesus like fulfilling that need that we have. And then the sufficiency of the act. So um, for the Passover, it's still to this day celebrated you know, um, by Jewish people every year. God commands that you will tell this story to your children and your children's children so that they may know that I am God. <clears throat> and so we see that being passed down, but there was only one true Passover, right? Like there's not an angel of death every, like around every Easter. We don't have to slaughter the lamb and paint, you know, the doorpost anymore, but we just tell the story. And that kind of is pointing to the one, um, the one substitutionary act of Jesus. And so we don't need a lamb for every household. Jesus is sufficient and um, the better lamb that then covers all of our sins. Um, and then lastly, um, we want to talk about the bread. And so God tells them, uh, I want you to leave with unleavened bread. And why is that? The first was because, like, we're in a rush. You got to go. Um, I know that quite a few of us made the sourdough during, like, COVID times, the quarantine sourdough. Like, raise your hand if you did. I did too. Um, you have to like feed the sourdough. It becomes like a child to you. Like you are measuring the grams and then you're feeding it with the sugar and everything. And it can spoil. And if it spoils, then you, you mess up your bread. You have to start all over again. And so um, it's a two-day process, roughly, like two to three days, right? Um, we don't have time to do that when we're running from Pharaoh. And so get the unleavened bread and go. But the, the second reason and kind of like the more pre um, prevalent reason is because um, we are making it, they are making a clean cut from their past in Egypt. Um, one thing, this is like a little bit nerd alert, so I'm sorry, but um, different starters will taste differently based on like where you have them because of like the spores in the air and the taste of the water, like the different flowers you use. We are separating from Egypt and from our bondage and we are having a new start. And so think about that in their hearts as well. That this is symbolic of um, separating from your old way of life and 
creating a new start. And I don't know if anyone has done, um, it's a rain for roots, it's um, like all about leaven. Have y'all heard this song? It's like, um, we wait and we wait and we work the bread and everything. It's talking about like the leaven, like raising of the bread. So like this new thing, this new good, um, good work is raising us up, right? Um, and so anyway, I think that that's kind of where that becomes important is just this new start and this break away from the bondage. And lastly, and kind of like in closing, we see Jesus celebrating the Last Supper. It was the Passover meal. And it's right before he ascends to the cross. He his, like, has this Last Supper, breaks the unleavened bread. And it's this really beautiful transition between the old covenant that we have just been studying and this new covenant where he's going to break his body um, for, you know, for, our, um, for covering our sins. And, hit, and the bread becomes his body, right? And so we see this beautiful like, transition. Um, from old covenant to new covenant and so um yeah that and that's just kind of how like we reflect on and the passover points to jesus and you know all of that so that's kind of all i've got can i pray for us real quick and then we'll stop heavenly father um lord you're so good to us thank you for this time where we can sit and talk with friends and study um your word thank you father for um, Exodus and being able to see just your might and your power and the fact that you love us so much that you would rescue us from our own bondage of sin, Lord. Um, I pray that you would bless over our conversations, that they would honor you, um, and that we would go into our weeks um, as a light to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm-hmm.